0: Thanks, Brother Eddie. It's good to be with each of you this morning. It's always a privilege anytime I have the opportunity to expound God's Word. So I pray uh, that he would use our time together this morning. We are going to be some on, on the mornings that Pastor Tim mostly preaches. He's going to be walking us through, Lord willing, over the next little bit, next couple months, the pastoral epistles. And that would include First and Second Timothy and Titus as well. And as I've had some time this week just to read and study, there's just so much here. It's been so encouraging to me. And there's so much here, I think, not only for our individual lives as Christians, um, but also a whole lot about what it means to be a faithful church. And so I pray that the Lord would really use it in our time together. Let me pray as we look at this passage together this morning. Father God, it is a privilege to be with your people. It's a privilege to have your word and to have the opportunity to open your word. Lord, thank you that I don't have to get up here in my own uh, strength and cleverness and come up with something wise to say. Lord, you have given us uh, the very scriptures, the very word of God. And so Lord, I pray this morning that you would just use me as an instrument. Uh, to share Your Word with Your people. Lord, knowing that we need it, our souls desperately need it. We're hungry, we're thirsty, so would You fill us this morning. Would You change our hearts, uh, give us ears that are attentive to listen, hearts that are open, and Lord, would Your Spirit work and move. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's get right into this passage. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning of chapter 1 of Paul's letter uh, to Timothy. Um, He's writing to Timothy, but he's also writing to a church, a specific church context. And that church context is the church in Ephesus. Uh, I'll say a little bit about that more in a moment, but, but he's writing to an individual and to a church situation. Let's look at the greeting. The greeting composes the first two verses there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. From the very outset of this letter, Paul wants to indicate that he's the author and that he has authority. He's writing a word of encouragement to Timothy and a word of warning to the church here in Ephesus. Scholars indicate that the letter was probably written between Paul's first and second imprisonment in Rome around about mid-60s. That would have been the time that he would have written this letter back to Timothy who was still in Ephesus. Ephesus, you may recall, was a booming church planning center. Out of Ephesus. Ephesus, excuse me, that that region there in Asia Minor, there would be a lot of churches that would come out of there in this early time in the life of the church. And there's some concerns here. Paul is concerned about the false teaching, the false doctrine that's being promoted in Ephesus. So he wants to clearly establish his authority to say something to this church knowing that it's going to influence many churches. So at the very outset... He indicates, I have the same authority as those original twelve. He was called as an apostle by Christ Jesus Himself. We see that in this greeting. This language here that we get also by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. God our Savior, that, that may sound a little unfamiliar to you. That was common different places in the Old Testament. And you may recall Mary and Mary's song there in, in Luke 1 where she refers to God our Savior. So in this early greeting, we get what is in a sense a looking back, a looking back to God coming in the form of human flesh, Christ taking upon Himself flesh uh, and going to the cross, looking back to that, and then also looking forward Christ Jesus, our hope. So we're looking back to the cross and are looking forward to the hope that we have in Christ and His reign uh, as eternal King. Let's pause just a moment and just think on that in verse 1 that Christ Jesus is our hope. For each of us this morning as children of God, that is true. No matter what situation or challenge you're facing, and we all face trials. We all suffer at different In different forms, in various ways at different times. Some of you may be suffering extremely difficult circumstances this morning. But before we skip over this, I just want you to hear from the Word of God. Christ is your hope. There is hope in Christ. There's absolute certainty that it's not always going to be this way. And that He's coming back and He's going to make all things right. Don Guthrie, in in his work on the pastoral epistles, describes Christian hope as just that, absolute certainty. We can be absolutely certain that as born again children of God, we carry with us this living hope and inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. In verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as a true child in the faith. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. This is significant in the sense that Timothy wasn't fully Jewish biologically. He had a Jewish mother, but he had a Greek father. And so this says something significant when Paul refers to him as a true child of faith. He wouldn't have been true to him biologically, not fully Jewish, but he was a son to him in the faith. And Paul had a deep love and respect for Timothy. We first get mention of Timothy in Acts 16 where he joins the ministry there with Paul and Silas at at Lystra. And there's strong evidence to believe that Timothy, along with his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, were converted when Paul first made his missionary witness in Lystra. Um, So just a connection there. And again, the deep love and respect that we see here in the language of the greeting that Paul had for Timothy. Another place we see this when Paul's writing to the church Philippi Philippians 2, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. So again, just this deep love and respect as a son in the faith that Paul had for Timothy to whom he is writing. Now you may recall in in a lot of the other Pauline epistles, his typical greeting includes grace and peace, which we see here as well. But we also have mercy added as well. Grace, peace, and mercy. And this may just serve to indicate further the love and affection he had for Timothy while also acknowledging Timothy was in a very difficult context, a very difficult church situation. So he wants to extend mercy to him as well. Timothy is one, I don't know about you, but I, I find a lot of encouragement as, as I think about the life of Timothy and the little bit we know about him. He was fairly young at this time. I guess young in the ancient world, he would have been in his mid-thirties. So he's fairly young. He, he kind of had a timid nature. He was a little shy. Not, not your bold Paul. Timothy, personality-wise, would have been a little bit different. Um, he also dealt with a lot of physical ailments. So he just had some different things going against him. And again, he was left in this very difficult situation. But, God in His grace and mercy worked through him to accomplish His purposes for building this church and advancing His kingdom. And I just find that as an encouragement. And I think there's a relevant application to you and I. He wants to do the same through us. Through you and through me, He works through our weakness To accomplish his purposes, to show himself strong. So, a lot there in just the opening two verses of the greeting we get. Now, let's move to verses three through seven. And and what we see here through the rest of these verses that I'm going to look at this morning, three through eleven, is a warning. A warning about improper use of the law. And then proper use of the law. So let's look verse three through seven. What we might consider an improper use of the law that Paul is rebuking and saying, Timothy, you got to stand up against this for me at this in this church here in Ephesus. Verse three: As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless, endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In Acts 19, Paul and Timothy are together there in Ephesus. And then Paul makes his way on to Macedonia, on his way on up to Jerusalem. But he commends Timothy, Timothy, you stay. I want you to stay there in Ephesus and stand up against this false doctrine. So again, he's writing back to him now in that context. And the situation was some of the leaders, the elders, pastors that were left there in that church, they were devoting themselves to things that were unfruitful, frivolous. We get here language of of myths, endless genealogies which weren't profitable. Instead of promoting faith in the gospel, they encouraged attention and speculation to matters that were just that, they were merely frivolous. Verse 7 gives us a little bit of insight into the nature of this vain discussion. They were desiring to be teachers of the law. A common practice or tradition amongst Jewish rabbis, just Jewish teachers during that time, was they would take the Old Testament and they would just add to it. They would speculate about it. Maybe take the Old Testament genealogies of certain saints and try and add things or make speculations that were not really there. Two books that circulated during this time, one the book of Jubilees and and another the biblical antiquities of Philo, that that was essentially what they were composed of. All these speculations about things that they weren't really certain of. And so they were adding, in a sense, what you might call a, a pharisaical flavor to the Old Testament. And they began to teach these things confidently and boldly. We get that here in what Paul says. Avoiding the one true gospel, they did this boldly and confidently. And it's this that Paul issues a stern warning and rebuke, urging Timothy, you've got to stand up against this. So the improper use of the law. Let's skip over verse 5 right now. We'll come back to it. But let's jump now to 8-11 through where we see a proper use of the law. liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's important to point out, as Paul does here in verse 8, the law is good. The law in and of itself is not bad. The concern is when the law is used unlawfully or in, in an ungodly manner. Paul in Romans 7 points out, we looked at this I think just a few weeks ago in our Christian growth group when we were talking about the law, the role it plays in helping to reveal sin. The gospel of God's grace, it doesn't dismiss His law. Instead, it just makes clear that the law is unable to justify. Only the good news of the gospel saves those who by faith repent and believe. So it has a role in revealing sin. It also has a sanctifying role in our lives. I think here of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, meditating on it day and night. So by doing that, it has a way the Spirit works to sanctify us as we focus and meditate upon God's law. And God's law also serves a civil purpose. A civil purpose in providing boundaries and restraint. And I think that is what Paul is referring to here most specifically, is the civil purpose of God's law. In verses 9 and 10, the commandments that we have listed here, they were a violation of civil law in addition to God's law, thus further indicating this role the law has in restraint. The only commandment from from the Ten Commandments that we get in Exodus is the commandment not to covet, which itself wouldn't have had some of the civil consequences as some of the others that he lists here. So, essentially, the point is, lawlessness doesn't accord with true doctrine. It discredits the Gospel. However, true doctrine and faithfulness to the Gospel is going to lead to appropriate restraint. Now let's jump back and look at at verse 5 there that I skipped over. Because I think this is the heart of what he's getting at. The aim of our charge, what I'm commending to you, Timothy, what it means to establish a faithful local church is to have an aim that focuses on love, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love is going to be the appropriate end result of faithful teaching and true doctrine. And the kind of love, Paul describes it here, it's love that springs forth, it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is essentially the chief aim for the Christian and for the church. We looked at this, Pastor Charlie read from Matthew there, where Jesus sums up the entire law in those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with your entire being, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's distinctively Christian love. And it hinges on being an inside out kind of love. What I mean by that is we can't clean ourselves up enough on the outside for that kind of love to happen. It has to be something that happens internal where God works and changes and gives us a new heart that beats for Him. And then as as we change on the inside, out of us will flow... Genuine Christian love that is distinctive. We can't fake it. I think all of us as believers would, would testify to this. It's hard to fake Christian love. If our hearts are impure, our love is going to be lacking. If we're not morally right, if we're not clear in conscience, our love is going to wane. And if our faith is not sincere, hypocrisy is not going to allow for selfless, Christ-like love. Ultimately, it's going to end up being about us if our heart is not in it. Everything that we say and do tells us something about our heart. Jesus taught that in Luke 6. And it's only from a pure and rightly ordered heart that we can truly love. And this is where I and you need God's help. We need His help desperately here. As children of God, we're those who have received a new heart. And yet, we're in the process of having our hearts align more and more with the heart of God. That's what transformation in the Christian life is all about. And we need His grace, His transforming grace to change us from the inside out. One other thing I want to focus on as I move to, to close here. I'm not quite done yet. I've got a little bit more. But There's a, a phrase here in verse 11 that I think is so rich and so beautiful where Paul's talking about this this proper use of the law, he also says there in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul was entrusted with a glorious gospel. Timothy too, as a son in the faith, he was entrusted with this same gospel. And we too, 21st century Christians, we've been entrusted as individual believers, as a local church, with this same gospel. It has not changed. And so as those who've been entrusted with something so precious, so dear, so valuable, we're called to steward it well. We need uh, to steward the good and gracious gift that God's given us well. And I want to suggest this morning, as we move towards some application, move to close... Four ways in which I think we as individual Christians and local, and the local church can steward well this amazing gift that we've been given. First, we need to know the gospel. So we need to know the gospel, we need to protect the gospel, to love the gospel, and put the gospel on display. So if you're making notes, I'll say those again and then I'll expound them a little bit. I think a way that we as Christians in a local church can steward well the glorious gospel that we've been given is if we know it, if we protect it, if we love it, and if we make much of it. Or maybe another way to put that is just if we put it on display. That's how we can steward it well. Think with me just a minute. I think all of you would be able to do this about something dear, precious to you in your life. It could be a parent, grandparent, son, daughter, grandson, niece, nephew, an organization you're part of. Just just think of something that is precious and dear. Now when you think about that person, you want to get to know them, right? You want to know everything about them. You want to know what they like to do, what they don't like to do, what their favorite foods are. Um, you want to protect them. You want to do whatever you can to provide for them and take care of them. You want to make much of them in ways that are appropriate. I know grandparents, they love to put their grandchildren on display, right? If they can have them for an afternoon or a morning, they love it. Um, if if you have a grandparent that you love to death, you're going to tell everybody about it. That's just natural for those things in our life that are dear to us, that we love, that we've been afforded, blessed with. In ways that are biblical and appropriate, you do. You want to make them look good. That's just... Normal and natural. Well, how much more should this be true of our lives as Christians about the good news of Jesus Christ, about all that God has done for us? How much more should we want to know about it, to love it, to protect it, and to put it on display in our lives? So, first, we need to know the gospel. We must know it. Simply, it's good news. I know the students probably get tired of hearing me talk about this, but we, we go over it so much. But I think it's so important. And I know many of them. I know Haley Short and Jessica Short, they probably could walk you through it right now. The gospel's good news because it's bad news. And that bad news means we have a problem. But we have a solution to that problem. that solution is in Jesus Christ, and it demands a response. Or maybe another easy way to just think of it is God, man, Christ, response. We need to know the Gospel. We need to be able to quickly share it with anybody that asks. So so let me just walk through that a little more slowly. I did it quick because they like to do that because they've memorized it on their hand. But it's good news. It's just simply Gospel. When When I use the word Gospel, it's just the good news of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's good news because there is bad news. The bad news is you and I fall way short of God's standard, of His glory. And and the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. So we have a problem. We have a dilemma when it comes to a holy and righteous and perfect God. But there is a solution that's been afforded to us to that dilemma. And that solution is the per- person of Jesus Christ. His perfect life and His death and His glorious resurrection, It it makes a solution to that problem for those who by faith repent and believe. And what Christ has done, that solution, it demands a response of every human person. And ultimately, every human person makes a response. It's one of two things. It's either we accept it or we reject it. We either believe or we don't believe. That's the gospel. That's simply the good news right there. So the Gospel is simple in a sense that a child, a small child can understand it. They can explain to you the Gospel that they're a sinner and that they need help and they need to be saved from their sin. But it's also deep and rich. These doctrines of justification and and sanctification and the atonement that is made available to us in Christ, they're rich. They're deep. They, They take a lot of time to think on and meditate on. And as we do that, It it stirs our heart and it moves us. So the Gospel is both simple, but it's profound. It never gets old. It's always relevant, always appropriate, and always needed. I love the chorus in the hymn, Blessed Assurance. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. It never, never gets old. So we need to know the Gospel. We also need to protect the Gospel. That's really at the heart of the context of this passage. Paul is concerned about the false doctrine being taught. And so at the end of this letter, we get again his word to Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So there's an obligation, not only upon church leaders, but all Christians to protect sound doctrine. Let us not fall prey to thinking that what was happening in Ephesus can't happen to Cornerstone Baptist Church or any other 21st century evangelical church. It can. And so we've got to always remain on guard. Sadly, we've seen over the years things such as the Bible Code or the Book of Mormon, the Da Vinci Code, or endless discussions on end-time concerns which we're not certain of. Just to name a few... How frivolous babble and irrelevant concerns, being proclaimed as some sort of special knowledge, it's hurtful to the church. It discredits the gospel. So we've got to know it and we've got to protect it. We also need to love it. We need to love the gospel. I think that's where this idea of meditating upon, letting the the truths, the great truths of the faith soak on our hearts is so important. Christianity that's all head and no heart is not true Christianity. This is where somebody like a Jonathan Edwards is so helpful. He recognized in his life and ministry the importance of loving God with both mind and heart. Let me read just one of the famous quotes on this point from him. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. So again, the one who has the doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection or just a heart overflow, a love for the truth, without that, not engaged in the business of religion at all. So we've got to meditate and allow these great truths to soak on our hearts like a sun soaks up and holds all the water. And then lastly, we need to make much of the Gospel. That is, we need to put it on display in all of our lives. There's no aspect of our lives where we can't or shouldn't put it on display. It applies to everything. My dad's a big Carolina fan. He loves the Heels. Now I know some of you in here, I know Eddie might have a little trouble with that. Pastor Charlie would too. I know there's a few Heels fans here at Cornerstone, they're right. Anyway, he loves the Tar Heels. But he also loves all ACC teams. That's one of those things he kind of... Impacted me with, I don't know, maybe it's a geographical thing. I know some Duke fans, they can't stand the Carolina fan, but there are some who, they'll have their top ACC team, like his top team is the Tar Heels, but he still will root for Wake and Duke and State when they're playing other teams. Anyway, I don't know if any of you else are like that, but that's kind of how he is, and, and I'm that way too. Anyway, I say all that to say, he's got what you might call a sports memorabilia room in his basement. It's got everything from Carolina posters and footballs, baseball cards, old soda cans, and then it expands too. It's not just Carolina. He's got some Duke things, some State things, Wake things. He's got it all. And and it's a pretty sweet display, I have to say. It's pretty neat. He's got a nice little setup down there. And he loves to share it. My brother and I would often kid him growing up that every time we had a guest come over, he would want to take him down there. Now, this buddy or friend might have just been over a week before they would show up at the door again. Hey, have you seen my Carolina room lately? Let me take you down there. I need to show you. I might have something new that you haven't seen. Anyway, I say all this, I was trying to think of a good illustration. Dad's here this morning. Dad, I hope that didn't embarrass you, but it's too late now. I've kind of already let it out. Anyway, that to me was a good illustration of thinking about what does it mean to put something on display and to share it. It it just kind of overflows. He he is excited about his sports room, and he likes to share that with people. I know at times in my own life, I'm not that eager to share the good news of Christ with someone. It, It doesn't just always overflow from my talk. And I may not be the quickest to share evidence of His goodness and faithfulness to me but but I should and my prayer is lord lord change me so that that is the case where folks just they just see it as an overflow i can't help but talk about all that god's done for me in christ and how he's been faithful and good to me i think that's that's at the heart of what it means to put the gospel on display we also have an opportunity to put it on display when we encounter the lows As we encounter suffering and various trials that we all face in this broken world, um, our response is going to indicate to others what's our greatest love, where ultimately is the source of our joy uh, and the focus of our hope. So as we encounter suffering, we have an opportunity to put the Gospel on display. And another great place, again, there's so many applications I could go here, but I think another important one to mention and in this context as well this passage of first timothy we have an opportunity to put it on display in our relationships in marriage husbands as we love our wives as christ loved the church we put the gospel on display as we tell them i'm sorry for how my sin has hurt you will you forgive me we put the gospel on display Parents and grandparents, as you help your children and grandchildren acknowledge and realize that they're sinners in need of God's grace and help, you put the gospel on display. When you tell them, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I need God to forgive me, let's pray. That puts the gospel on display uh, in, in your life. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who are part of the family of God, We have numerous opportunities to serve one another, to give to one another, to forgive one another, and to demonstrate to one another our love for each other and for the gospel, and to put it on display. And others will see that, and and I believe they'll be drawn to it. We gain a glimpse uh, in, in Revelation of how the Ephesian church fared in all this. Let me read just a few verses from Revelation 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So later on in the life of the church there at Ephesus, they're commended for their doctrinal integrity. They were faithful to true doctrine, but they're rebuked for lacking love. Knowing the Gospel and loving the Gospel needs to translate into love for one another. It must, or our witness is going to be poor. If we truly love and care for right doctrine, it's going to have a practical impact. And in a similar manner, if we neglect the preservation of sound doctrine, our love is going to be shallow and superficial. So at the outset of this new book, this this letter that we're going to look at together... Let us consider the wisdom and practical truths they have for our lives, both as individual Christians and for our life as a local church. I pray that we at Cornerstone Baptist Church would be a church committed to the truth, committed to sound and true doctrine, and also characterized by a deep love for God and a deep love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how a text that that is old in the sense of at least when it was originally written, still has so much truth and relevant application and help to our lives today as individual Christians and as a church. Lord, would you help us as a church to love the truth of Your Word and to love sound doctrine, to love all that You have done for us in Christ. And then, Father, out of that, might it just be an overflow into our lives of love for one another. Might others see our love for one another and know that You have deeply impacted our hearts and that our love for You is deep and rich and true. Father, only You can bring this about by Your Spirit. And so we ask that You would do so for our good, and ultimately for Your glory and the advancement of Your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.